Okay, if you could turn with me back to Matthew 2. As I said, it's a, it's a well-known story, isn't it? It's one that it kind of finishes off the Christmas season. Um, and there are three main characters. Bear with me. There are three main characters here, I would say. And you would question me and say, well, I'm not really sure that you're particularly good at counting. Um, but the ones I want us to look at are the wise men, King Herod, and God. So let's look at the uh, three people first before we then get into our three key points this morning. So who were the Magi or who were the wise men or as per the other version of that, three kings? Well the word used in the Bible um, here in Matthew is one that is not used particularly nicely in scripture. Um, its example would be Simon the Sorcerer, which is in Acts chapter 8 and verse 9, or Elymas the Sorcerer, which is in Acts 13 verse 8. The word could mean these, which to some Jewish writers would be interpreted as a wizard, an enchanterer, a blasphemer of God, or someone who entices you to idolatry. Uh, and it's a 12th century word, that the one that we find in our Bibles, which can be translated as skilled magicians, astrologers, um, which is from the Latin magnus, which means magician or learned uh, magician. Or from the Greek, magnos, which is a word used for the second one, which is a Persian learned and chiefly class of individual. So that would be people that came from an area called Mygdonia, which is in Arabia, a Persian priestly class. And they may have had Jewish ancestry. And they were first appointed by King Cyrus, who appears in the Bible 23 times. And he is the king, if you remember your Old Testament, he is the king that conquers Babylon and then allows the Jews to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. It is said that they were appointed by the king to sing hymns to the gods as soon as it was day. And an ancient historian wrote, amongst the Persians, they were wise concerning God and worshipped him and were called Magi. So part of their duties, they were known was to know the ancient writings. So they would have known the Old Testament well. And they would have sought out any prophecies that foretold what was to come. And the old word magic that we have actually meant the art of influencing or predicting events. So we have changed the meaning of things over time. They had read the Old Testament and they knew the prophecies about the coming Messiah and his coming. So when they saw the star they knew that this was an event that had been foretold in the Old Testament and therefore they were off to seek out this important person. So that's the Magi. King Herod. Now there are a number of Herods in the, in the, in the New Testament. The King Herod that was on the throne when Jesus was born wasn't the same one that was on the throne uh, when Jesus is crucified. 
And let's guess his, let's get his status right. He is a king, and in fact he is the king of Judea, who ruled the territory, but with Roman approval. But he was not the true king of the Jews. He ruled for 37 years, and this event is very, very close to his last days. He died when he was 69, and he probably died within a year of these events, because he died in 4 BC. For those that know the story well, he was a paranoid man. He executed wives, plural, sons, and other relatives for fear that they were after his throne. He taxed the population severely to pay off Rome and to cover the cost of his many construction um, projects, including the rebuilding of the second temple in Jerusalem. But the upside of this was that this gave the people of Jerusalem in particular work. And he kept the Romans at bay, which was also a good thing as far as the people were concerned. And when there were times of famine, of which there were a number during his reign, he made sure that the people were provided for and that those that were needy had food. So the people of Jerusalem both feared him and had a dependence upon him. So when the, new, the news of the new king came, this would have alarmed and intrigued the people. So how do we see God in this story? Well, firstly, we see God by sending the star. The second one, we see him as the baby, the promised Messiah, that's Jesus. And then finally in the story, we see God warning the wise men via a dream. So God is involved all the way through this story from the very beginning right the way through to the very end. So the first of my points then, thinking about the wise men in particular, we are to seek without ceasing. The wise men seek the promised king of the Jews, and by doing so, they leave everything behind them to find God's promise. Everything that they considered worth and value is left behind as they go in search of the one who they know is the most important person that they could ever find. They travel a long way. I mean, we don't know exactly where they came from, but it's estimated they travelled probably about 500 miles as the crow flies, and it took anywhere between three months, which is more probable, or two years and the reason for the two-year figure is because if the star appeared when the baby was born and then Herod is looking to kill all the, all the um, boys um, up to the age of two. So piecing together the interrogation of the wise men by Herod, you come at the two-year figure. But it is more probable that it was probably about anywhere between three months to nine months. Also, Mary and Jesus are no longer in the stable. So any pictures of the shepherds being there and then the kings all being there, get rid of those Christmas cards because that's just not, a, not the right image. It's not the one that you find here in the Bible. And interestingly enough, when the wise men do turn up, 
it's Mary and the baby there. You don't actually hear of Joseph at this instant. He is in Jerusalem in the surrounding area, but he may well have been out at work when they turn up. Also, we see that the angel of the Lord then comes after the wise men have gone to Joseph to tell him to take the family and to flee down to Egypt. So they travel quite some way and they continue undeterred until they find the king of the Jews in the quest of their quest to worship him. Second point, the devil does not want you to find Jesus. Herod was troubled when he heard these things. His way of life suited him, and in fact, to be fair, it suited most of the people as well. Although this was an abusive relationship, because they were like captives who feared freedom, they were like hostages who love and have an admiration for their captor. Their view of what was right and what should be was so distorted by their imposed king that they no longer saw things as they should. You know, sin does exactly the same thing to us. The devil holds us captive. To the world that he is creating, a world that rejects good and seeks temporary freedom and fun, a world acting without consequences, ignoring the cost of rebellion and blinding us and clinging on to the false notion that what we have is the way that things should be, that it is good, that it is our right and our freedom to do what we please and to do how we want to do it. When the reality is that there is a hidden to us, and a forgotten cost of rejecting God. There is a consequence of our continued rejection of him, and there is an eternal punishment. And at the end, there are no second chances. There's no final reprieve, and when it's over, it's over, and the punishment is just about to start. Herod is concerned that his fun is under threat. Hadn't he killed relatives, some of his wives and even some of his own sons? And now this unexpected threat. He was under siege by an unknown and an unseen enemy. So what does he do? He gathers all of the chief priests. Notice it's plural. Many of them, not just the chief priests, but the all of the chief priests and the scribes, that's the learned ones, those who should know about something about this, and he demands that they tell all, and they respond, as we read in Matthew chapter 2, with these words, In Bethlehem in Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, that thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor, that shall rule my people. Now I've read from the AV there. What is interesting in Matthew's account is that the words are not the same in Matthew's account as they are in the book of Micah. But Matthew 
is accurately writing down the words that were said by the chief priests and the scribes. What do I mean by that? Well, if you were to go back to the AV version of the Micah reading, you will read these. But thou, Bethlehem of Rapha, though thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto thee that is to be a ruler in Israel. So the word govern, uh, ruler, has been changed by the chief priests, etc., to the word governor. They've watered it down. They've lessened the threat to the king. Maybe they were fearful that the actual words seen here were going to bring bad tidings. And to bring bad tidings to this king is not a wise step. Whatever their motive, the words clearly here are shown to be watered down of what Micah's words were. And I think there is a really important message for us here. And it's one that the modern church is in significant danger of doing. We are never, ever, ever, ever to water down what Scripture says and what God says for fear of what the world might think about what we are saying. It is our responsibility to remain true and faithful to God's word and to deliver it as it is, in a loving way, maybe, but not to water it down. Herod then calls the wise men to a secret meeting. Notice that he dismisses everybody else and he calls in the wise men to attend this secret meeting. Having found out what was needed from the religious lot, he then focuses his attention to remove the threat to his throne. If you look at the AV um, again, you will notice that he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared, which means that he was steady and earnest and put a lot, lot of effort into his preparation for his plan, which he needed to succeed. He had invested heavily into making sure that all he knew ensured that he was successful. In fact, he tries to trick the wise men by instructing them or suggesting that they use the same diligent approach to find the child. And as soon as they find the child, to come back because he wants to go and worship them. And yet in his own heart, he had already worked a way to remove the threat to his throne. A third point, God in control. And again, this is something that I think is lost in, in the NIV translation. Um, there, there are certain key points that you lose through a slight poorer translation. Um, the wise men are back on track and the star returns. Now, in the, a the NIV, which we just read there, you don't really get the feeling that the star has gone away. But if you look at the AV in the original text, the star appears to them while they're in the east. They then journey and head in the direction of where, effectively into the west, and they head in that journey, but the star is no longer there. 
After they then meet with Herod, they leave Herod and the star reappears. And that is why they're overjoyed, because suddenly the star has returned. So they come to worship him, and they went to Jerusalem, no longer following that star, but assuming that that is the direction of where he should be born. And it's obvious, if he's a king, he's going to be born where the king is. So they then travel and stop there in Jerusalem. The leading of the star, when it reappears, gives them renewed joy. In fact, the Bible records that they were overjoyed. Have you ever experienced God's leading in your life? And then suddenly he's remained silent. You continue on the way in which he has told you to go. You keep on going. In faith you continue, but without that guiding presence. But you know that if it was right then, it is right now. And then suddenly, almost without warning, he appears again by your side and continues to guide you on. What a thrill it is to experience his presence when he then returns back by your side. And you work and you move on that journey with a renewed joy and a renewed vigour. And this is their experience here. For months they had travelled by faith. They had searched here and there and they continued on that journey. They weren't sure where, but they carried on. And I bet doubt began to descend upon them. Months after months go by and they still haven't found that king. And doubt comes from the devil. They face a scheming puppet king in Herod. And doubt must have descended upon them again. Had they got it right, maybe they'd read the signs all wrong. And then here is this light shining once again, the supernatural shining above the natural. And then they see the king of kings with his mother Mary, the fulfillment of the ancient promises, prophecies satisfied in front of their own very eyes as their eyes adjust to the light of the house. And here is the Messiah. What else can they do now but bow down and worship the Creator King? The promise of ages is now here in front of them and they are able to bow down and to praise and worship him. I bet it made every single step of that journey worthwhile and all the doubts that they had were swept away And joy overflowed as they saw that child. And their gifts point towards who the baby is and who the baby was to be. It is also fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah 60 and verse 6, um, the words are, The herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephrath, and all Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So we have the three gifts that are given, three key and important gifts. We had what they were mentioned to us in that hymn. Gold, gold is a gift that you give to kings. So it's acknowledgement of who the baby was. Frankincense, however, takes it to a different level. Frankincense is a gift that you give to God it is an aromatic balm used in incense and was used 
before the altars as offerings to the gods. So it elevates who Jesus is, from just a king to a god-king. And then finally, myrrh, an aromatic resin used to prepare bodies for burial. What a strange gift to give to a child, unless you realise who the child is and why he came. To die in our place, to take our sins and to take our punishment because of our doubts and our lack of knowing who he is. And for not having him sitting on the throne in our lives. That's why myrrh was given. Finally, God is in control of protecting both the wise men and the young king of kings. And he sends a dream to them to warn them to avoid returning to Herod and to thwart him and his plans to exact a terrible end to this child. Instead, they depart the scene and do not return to Jerusalem, thereby giving the child and the wise men chance to escape Herod. To ensure this succeeds, God also sends an angel to Joseph, the angel of the Lord to Joseph, once again via a dream to instruct him to take Mary and the young child down to Egypt. God is in control, not man. When man's scheming looks like it was going to succeed, God intervenes not once, but twice. The wise men could have returned with the good news to Herod, and the young family would have still been in Bethlehem when the forces turn up. But God is not going to let that happen. So in closing, we need to see that God is in control. But that the devil wants to frustrate his plans and to destroy any hope we have of reconciliation with the Father. And therefore, we need to seek him without ceasing. For me, I no longer follow a star looking for the Messiah, but I now follow the brighter morning star, Jesus the Messiah himself. And if you have not found him, like the wise men, seek him diligently. Because when he finds you, he, you will be complete. Just like the good shepherd, he hears our cries and seeks us out when we are lost, when we have strayed away from the fold.